News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, lawyers for former U.S. President Donald Trump are asking a federal judge to prevent the FBI from continuing to review documents. Those documents recovered from his Florida estate earlier this month. They're asking for the pause until a neutral special master can be appointed to inspect the records. Joining us to talk more about this is Reggie Cicchini, Global News Washington correspondent. Reggie, good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. Uh, So uh, this request has been made for a a special master to inspect the records. Where does that stand at this point? So the motion was just filed uh, yesterday. It is obviously going to have to work its way through the court uh, and the Department of Justice is obviously going to respond. Uh, I think it's worth pointing out here that a special master was approved and brought in during uh, uh, the raids or the searches uh, that that uh, took documents from both Michael Cohen and from Rudy Giuliani uh, to ensure that there were no privileged uh, or or attorney-client uh, documents. So this is not something that is out of the ordinary. It is simply the motion itself that is extraordinary because of some of the detail that was put inside of it that is very clearly uh, at the voice of Donald Trump, and it really does mix politics and justice into this motion, and it really is kind of causing a bit of a stir. Do we know at this point as well, we're talking about classified records. We know that Donald Trump has said, or through his lawyers, had said that that whatever records that are in question, they had been declassified. Is there anything that has backed that up or do we know for sure one way or the other? No, uh, there, there is nothing that's been documented that says any of the information that had been brought to Mar-a-Lago was declassified. And that's, again, because there's a procedure uh, in D.C. to ensure that documents that have been declassified have been marked as such and that there is a paper trail of that, again, because there is a potential for a national security threat here. But it is also worth remembering that Donald Trump and his lawyers not only said that everything was declassified, they then upped that to say that there was some kind of standing order that allowed for that documentation uh, to be be declassified well at the same time saying that the FBI potentially planted uh, the documents there well at the same time saying that everything had been delivered back to Washington. So this is a strategy for the former president to distort reality to ensure that his base is riled up and at the same time to delay the ongoing investigation. And what about, uh, so is the issue also then that uh, potentially he could have shared classified documents or, or the question being who might he have shared these with? Sure, I think that's a real concern here. Uh, and, and there is... Um you know, there are people that are pointing back to times when, you know, former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe was at Mar-a-Lago and the former president and him were sitting at a table talking about classified information to do with North Korea. And it was done in open public where people were taking pictures of what was on their phones and documents in their hands. And, you know, that's just kind of one instance of what took place at Mar-a-Lago, which is a private club that allows hundreds of people in arm's reach of the former president and most areas of that building at any point in time and to hear now that the FBI took more than 300 classified documents out of uh, of Mar-a-Lago over several different visits there including 150 when they were there uh, back in January of this year it really does open up concerns to what potentially could have been put in the hands of the public uh, and and what the former president may still be trying to hold on to himself right because are there any is there any indication that there are still documents there or there could be more certain Well, we know that the former president 
from reporting was was rifling through some of these documents uh, and potentially taking stuff out. Uh, and and look, this is the third time that uh, that members of the National Archives uh, and agents have been at Mar-a-Lago to take documents back. So there is a real possibility here that things could potentially still be there. But you know, going back to this motion that's been filed, the former president is also asking for documents to be brought back to him. A, trying to claim that they were declassified already, but B, saying that he wants to be able to hand them over to National Archives before they go to some still-to-be-developed Trump library. And I think that gets to the point here that National Archives and Department of Justice have been doing this for more than a year to get these documents back, and he's now saying, give them back to me so I can hand them back. This is just one of those opportunities to A, delay this, and key, B, keep it into the political sphere as we head closer to the midterms, because he is fundraising and making a fortune off of this. And where are we as far as unsealing warrants and trying to get more information or more details about exactly what we're dealing with? So Department of Justice has until Thursday to respond to what the court is asking for, and that's to give them something that is, you know, has a few more redactions uh, uh, in it that maybe, you know, could go to the public's hand. But just yesterday, uh, the judge who initially signed off on this said that he believed that there is uh, enough information in there to keep this sealed. So we may see some, you know, drips and drops of what a part of that affidavit might be, but the judge doesn't believe that anything that's in there really needs to be in the public's hand. Because remember, he signed off on this and he believed and said that there is, uh, you know, plausible uh, uh, evidence here that a potential crime was committed. So he very clearly understands what's at stake here if this is put out in the public, while at the same time understanding how politicized this event has been. So DOJ has till Thursday. From, the, from what the legal world is saying, I don't think we're going to see much from that affidavit. All right, Reggie, thank you so much for bringing us up to date on this. Appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Reggie Cicchini, Global News, Washington correspondent. This is Mornings with Simi. Thanks for being with us this morning. Well, our show contributor, Raji Sohal, is joining us now to talk about dancing and why dancing in some cases has come under fire lately. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. This story, this latest news story about uh, someone getting in trouble for dancing has annoyed me. It's a basically a police chief in the UK is defending his officers because they were dancing the Macarena at a pride event. So this is a pride event. It's a parade. The video shows them being jolly. They're all having fun. But really, they're supporting the community, right? And that's what we know officers are supposed to do. They're supposed to understand the communities they work you know, work with. And the police chief said that policing was about engagement in the community, too. So he, uh, although he came under major criticism, he said, no, this is what we're supposed to do. And we want the community also to see who we are as people. My only um, criticism of the police officers after watching the video myself is that they were dancing the Macarena and not a better song because that (laughs) song is the worst. (laughs) And it's such an earworm. And once it's in your head, it's there forever. So that my only my only qualm was the song choice but otherwise I think that they were doing the right thing to get out there and dance and lately there have been all these stories uh there's this one about the Finnish prime minister who was criticized for a leaked video of her dancing at a friend's private party you probably heard about that story Santa mm-hmm. Marin is her name she's 36 years old and people in the public said she behaved inappropriately by dancing 
And this, to be clear, was at her friend's house. It's a private residence. And the latest news on that story is that she has, uh, she's tested negative for drugs because there was public outcry that, oh, she must have been on drugs and she should have a test done. And so, and the results made public. And I'm like, what is going on here? Dancing is good for you. It releases neurotransmitters and it's just good. It feels good. And I think right now we should all be dancing. Right. Yeah, no, looking at the uh, the police officers, too, it made me think of what a difference to see officers and uniformed officers, obviously different than officers here, uh, but pe- taking part in dancing in a pride parade, whereas here uh, in Vancouver, uh, officers have been told they're not welcome to be in the pride parade and aren't allowed to wear their uniforms and be part of it. So a big difference there. Yeah, so this was in Lincoln, UK. Apparently at the Pride Parade in London, UK, there was a request from the organizers of Pride that the police didn't participate either. So that is something that has been happening around the world. But I think like what the Lincoln police officers did by uh, not only showing up, but participating and dancing with people that were at the parade, they did something different. They progressed things in relations. Uh, And I think that that's how you build relationships. You get uh, to know the other side, you engage, you participate, you have fun together. So I want to see more dancing. (laughs) Quite frankly, I want to see people dancing more. Yeah, I'm not a dancer. Never have been. Don't like it. Oh, I like okay. other activities, but I get what you're saying. It's good for you. It uh, you know is, does good things for your brain, but I'd, I'd need to find the dancing equivalent. Do you feel, though, that these officers behaved unprofessionally or are you OK with other people dancing? In oh, 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 God, no, no, they were. No, it's great. I think I full fully agree with the police chief. I mean, they're, yeah. it's not like they were ignoring some giant crime that was taking place exactly. down the street and instead saying, oh, no, no, we're just going to go dance in this parade. I think yeah, he makes an excellent point. Like you said, it's part of being part of the community, knowing your community and, and showing that you're part of it. I think it's 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 fantastic. I was surprised that there was so much criticism of it. Yeah, and I think the the criticism comes out of people thinking that oh, we, you know, officers would be compromising their seriousness, their professionalism in the role, um, and that dancing compromises that. But like, people need to let loose a little bit. I think we should all really all be dancing. We do a we do a post dinner dance party every night, and we rotate which member of the family gets to call the the song that we're gonna all dance to. We just do one song at seven o'clock before I put the kids to bed. And I love it. I look forward to it all day. I'm guessing the Macarena is never on uh, the playlist for that one. No, it's not. And a friend of mine recently taught my five-year-old how to do the Macarena, taught them how to request the song on our, <laughs> from, from Siri at home and surprise mama. She said, go home and surprise mama with this because she knew I do not like that song. So yes, unfortunately, that it's, it's on rotation here, but uh, I, I never request it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I guess not. Uh, interesting though, who would have thought that dancing would, although I think it's it's probably a bigger issue. Maybe they need to, to look at, but is 36 old enough to be the prime minister of a country? And there's other issues there, but who would have thought dancing would cause so much controversy? 
so much controversy. There have been all these videos of Finnish women dancing in a show of solidarity and support for Sanna Marin, Finland's prime minister. They've posted them to social media. Um, yes, <laughs> who, you know, the, asking the question about uh, who could at 36, year old, 36 years only on the planet have enough experience to run a whole country. That's a totally different <laughs> question. But she definitely has like youth on her side in terms of the energy. Like when she, these videos of her dancing, I mean, she's really going for it. And for me, that that bodes well in her favor because it just shows she's got she's got the energy to do this gig. All right, Raji, thank you. We'll talk to you again a bit later on. Thanks, Jill. Mornings with Simi. Thanks for being with us on this Tuesday morning. Well, we know there has been chaos at airports, long lines, cancellations, and expensive tickets. However, as more and more people are getting back to travel, it looks as though there could be some relief coming when it comes to the price of those airfare tickets. The price is expected to drop this fall, meaning those looking to book flights could see some big discounts. Joining us to talk more about this is John Graddick, lecturer and program coordinator supply chain logistics and operations management at mcgill university thank you so much for being with us good morning just a pleasure being here uh, great to chat with you about this why do we think that the price for airline travel is going to fall in the fall well a couple of factors in there first of all that typically when you look at airline travel and hospitality travel in general there is a drop-off in demand you know post labor day Um, it's been like that for the last 40 years. There's nothing that's going to be different this year. As kids are going back to school, universities are opening up, people's vacations are over. Uh, so demand will naturally fall off in the fall. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> the airlines haven't got the ability to, in fact, retract capacity. Uh, so the capacity that we see this summer will be there for the fall. The flight airplanes will be there. The flights will still be there. The question now is how do airlines compete with each other to try to fill those airplanes as much as they possibly can. And that's where the typical vehicle that the airlines use, and it's going to be again this year, is price. And they'll go after each other uh, in terms of trying to entice travelers to try their airline using price as a vehicle to do that. So will it be mainly to the lower-cost carriers, or do you think we're going to see all airlines kind of get in uh, this battle? Everybody is going to jump in. Everybody's going to be pretty desperate for, for, for traffic this fall. I think that, you know, the low-cost carriers, of course, I've already started. They, you know, they they fired the first volley in the uh, in the battle. Um, you know, you're looking at fares uh, in the fall that from Vancouver to Toronto, you're you know in a hundred and sixty, hundred and eighty dollar round trip range, uh, whereas it was around eight hundred or nine hundred dollars this week. Uh, so you know the links, the flares of this world uh, are, are are gearing up and they're being very aggressive in the fall. And Air Canada, WestJet, Swoop, we're all you know watching very intently. The prices have come down a little uh, to kind of be close to where Flair and Links are. Uh, so I, I would expect I'd, I'd see even lower prices from Flair and Links than I see now. Hmm. So when you look at something like that, going from a, a ticket that was in the $800 range and then being offered for around $200 or even slightly less, even if yeah. the planes are full, how do the airlines make money on that? They don't. Um, <laughs> they don't make money. Uh, they, you know, this Now, the, the typical adage you have in the industry is, what's the fastest way to make a million bucks in the industry? It's start with $10 million. And mm -hmm. that adage was, was, was first, you know, uh, uh, discussed in the 1970s. And guess what? In 2020, it's still the same number. Everybody basically is trying to get as aggressive as they can to fill the airplanes as much as they can. 
and it's contribution pricing, basically not to make much money in the fall, just to fill up the airplane as much as you can, covering the cost of fuel, maybe the cost of the traffic, cost of passing the uh, flight crew, uh, but nowhere near making any money, nowhere near making any money to cover the cost of the airplane. So it's basically uh, a lost leader for the fall. And do you think then, is it going to be, um, you mentioned kind of the trips, the domestic trips in Canada. Are we also going to see a drop in prices when we're talking about international travel? I don't think so. I, I think that, you know, you'll still see, there will be a drop. Like, you know, to, to fly from Vancouver to London uh, this summer was someone arranged for about you know, 1000 1200 bucks. Uh, you may go down to about 800 bucks round trip, um, but that's probably as low as you're going to go. Um, the big battleground this this fall uh, will be North America. So Mexico, the Caribbean, Hawaii, international flights to Europe or Asia, um, they're still going to be uh, a little cheaper, but not as cheap as it will be traveling domestically. And do you think things will improve then if this does kind of entice more people to fly or get back into traveling? What about the issues at airports as far as crowding and delays and cancellations and all of those things that make travel a bit uh, a bit more difficult? Well, I think, you know, the, the, this, this, this retrenchment of travel, this retrenchment of demand that we, we will normally see happen, you know, early mid-September, uh, is significant, and it'll it'll be there to basically reduce the workload on the airports, uh, on the airlines. So I am assuming uh, at this point in time that the demand will in fact ease the pressure on the airports. These low fares that you're going to see, you know, as far as how much demand are you going to be creating? Probably not as much. Everybody's still fighting inflation. Everybody, you know, the discretionary dollars people have to take a trip, um, you know, is going to be few and far between. Uh, so it, it's not really going to be doing anything to, to really increase the demand for, for air travel. It's just going to be the carriers fighting among themselves to attract the, the, you know, the few Canadians that will, in fact, be traveling this fall. And will it be the same that we've seen in other years as well then? Like you said, we normally see a bit of a dip after the summer travel season in the fall. Do you anticipate then things will ramp back up for Christmas or holiday travel? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, you will, will, it'll probably be short. It depends on inflation and it depends on how people feel about disposable income for Christmas. You know, I think that, you know, we still have been, you know, used to having Christmas at home for the last couple of years with, with COVID. Uh, you know, we've kind of got travel out of, the, out of our bloodstream in the summer. We've, got, we've caught up for the most part. Um, you know, depending on how airlines see demand flowing, we may be up to back in the eight hundred, nine hundred dollar transcontinental fare range for a couple of weeks at Christmas, but come mid January we're back down into the doldrums again. So, yeah, two weeks Christmas could be a little expensive. So my advice is, you know, book those flights early. Don't wait until the last minute to book your Christmas flight. If you got something planned, uh, do, do it as soon as you possibly can because the fares might go up if demand is there. All right, that was uh, my next uh, and final question. Uh, not that you have a crystal ball, but yeah, so book early, or if you know you want to travel now, should should you be waiting for better deals, or when is a good idea, idea for people to book? I think that, you know, Christmas, you know, is, 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 is probably the one, you know, area that I would say if you're going to book, book now, uh, don't wait too long, because if people do, in fact, feel like traveling and inflation kind of slows down a little, that will get people to travel again at Christmas. Uh, but I would still suggest, you know, book as early as you can. Um, and in fact, look at, you know, next summer, you know, look at next summer, summer of 2023, April, May, June. Uh, if you're going to fly internationally, 
Uh, the fares are still going to be fairly low now for next summer, but uh, come, come early spring next year, the prices will go back up again. So uh, internationally, book early. Uh, domestically, uh, I'd say wait because the fares are going to come down even more. All right. Good advice for anybody with travel on the horizon. John Graddock, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Have a great day. Take care. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, Canada has agreed to buy millions more doses of Moderna's vaccine. This is the vaccine that's adopted, adapted sorry, to both target the Omicron variant as well as some of the earlier forms of COVID-19. The Canadian government has also entered into a supply deal with the company. That deal last year for supply of the vaccine for 2022 and 2023. So Moderna and Canada have agreed to convert 6 million doses of the company's vaccine, which again targets the original virus to an Omicron-containing bivalent vaccine. What does this mean as far as our vaccination program? Well, Dr. Brian Conway is with us, Medical Director and Infectious Diseases Specialist at the Vancouver Infectious Disease Centre. Dr. Conway, good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, how does this change things or does it change things kind of converting these doses so they are including the vaccine that also targets Omicron? Well, this is a newer vaccine. It is still providing protection against the original strains of COVID-19, but it is half and half. It's half providing that protection and half providing protection against the newer Omicron strains uh, so really being better targeted against the, the actual COVID virus that is circulating right now in the community. And at this point, has Health Canada, was my understanding Health Canada is still reviewing this or are we, do, do you oh, think? No, that, no, no, it's approved. It it's is approved. approved. The okay. Moderna vaccine, the Pfizer one is still being reviewed. The okay. Moderna one is completely approved and it's just an issue of uh, supply chain logistics and provincial regulations in terms of making it available. All right. So it's the Pfizer one that's still that's still under review. Yeah. Yep. Uh, how will this change things or how important is this, do you think, as we head into the fall and into uh, the fall flu and cold season? Well, it really improves the ability of the vaccine program to provide us the protection that we need. It's important that everyone get their three shots. If you haven't gotten your third shot, go out and get it. Don't wait for this to become available. You need three shots in uh, the current uh, in the current environment. If you're eligible for your fourth shot in the very short term, because you got your third shot more than six months ago, and you're eligible for the fourth shot, go out and get that. If you don't fit into these categories, your next shot is going to be the bivalent vaccine that should be available shortly, protects you better against the strains that are currently being transmitted in British Columbia. Are you concerned at all? There are going to be, I think, people in the scenario where they did get the three shots, maybe they got COVID as well, and are kind of done, don't want to get the fourth shot. What do you say to that group? We live in COVID world. COVID is going to be around for the foreseeable future. Our first line of defense is vaccines. So when you're eligible to receive the next vaccine, please consider doing so at the earliest possible time. When the bivalent vaccine becomes available, if you have not received a shot very recently, as soon as that becomes available, please consider going out to get that. It protects you in that extra way, in that, in that supplementary way against the Omicron strains that are being transmitted. 
So even if you do get infected, it'll be milder disease, and it's less likely that you'll get infected and transmitted to people who would be at higher risk of being hospitalized, potentially dying of COVID. So it's a win-win situation. It's what's going to get us through the fall and winter. Uh, Is it also important, though, or perhaps more important, that we make sure these vaccines are focused on those groups that you just mentioned, the more vulnerable and the high risk? I think right now those are the individuals that if they haven't gotten their third shot, they should. And most of them are eligible to get a fourth shot, and they should do that in any of the rollouts of vaccine programs. We should always target it to individuals at highest risk of the most severe consequences of COVID without forgetting everyone else because it's the rate of vaccination, the overall community that ends up protecting us against a transmission in the broadest possible sense. And what are your thoughts on school children? I know we've talked more recently about those second shots for the 5 to 11 age group. As we get ready to go back to school, what, what do you think is most important or needs to be done as far as vaccinations for that age group? More shots in arms. I think we're really falling behind. It's difficult for parents to make decisions for others, and sometimes they defer it because they aren't making decisions for themselves. It's for others and their concerns. They're concerned. Please go out and ask your questions. Vaccination is our best first line of defense. And that includes everyone now down to the age of six months. The um, We're going to be talking about this a bit later on in the program as well. Do you think anything else needs to change as far as this is going to be the first school year where it's going to feel more normal or at least as close to normal as we have in a few years? Uh, the health minister has said don't expect any huge changes as far as uh, COVID-19 measures. Uh, vaccination, as you said, is is the good defense. Do we need to be doing anything else in the classroom school setting? In any of the waves of COVID, schools have not served as an amplifying factor for transmission. There has been transmission in schools, but it has completely paralleled what occurs in the community. Schools are probably safer for our children than the general community because we know who's there. We can send sick people home very easily, and it's pretty much always the same people day to day. That's a safer environment than the general community. I think we need to get more shots in arms, especially in kids, and teach people that if you learn this from school age, if you're sick, you stay home. This is something that hopefully will be part of the social fabric forever and ever going forward. So I would use school as an opportunity to teach these skills and to have open discussions about vaccines. If people aren't vaccinated yet, why not? Let's not force people, but let's force the discussion about that in a respectful way. All right, Dr. Conway, always good to talk with you. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Always a pleasure, Jill. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, have you noticed a decrease when it comes to perfectly manicured lawns in your neighborhood? Maybe you're seeing wild fields in their place. If so, you're not seeing things. For more on this, we are joined by CKNW contributor Raji Sohal. Good morning again to you. Hi, Jill. Yeah, I've been noticing that there are fewer manicured lawns in my neighborhood. Of course, not everyone has lawns, but for those that do, many are switching them out. They're getting rid of the traditional lawn and they might be letting their old lawn grow out, maybe letting it brown or get long, uh, or maybe they're replacing it with wildflowers. I'm certainly seeing it. Tons in my neighborhood. Tall grasses, wildflowers, uh, shrubbery instead of lawns, uh, people doing kind of a hybrid, maybe keeping some of the grass, uh, but uh, having a shrubbery on the sides that takes up less water. So this practice is meant to boost 
biodiversity and wildflowers are supposed to attract bees and pollinators uh, in a way that a green lawn is not going to do that. Green lawns also require uh, pesticides to stay super green, tons of water, of course. And with, you know, water restrictions, that's uh, that's tough for the environment. I talked to a biodiversity expert at UBC, Terry Sunderland, and he says that with our current climate, there's really no reason to keep lawns. Lawns take up an enormous amount of water. They also are the recipients of large amounts of, of uh, fertilizer, which often comes with herbicide as well. So we've got lots of chemicals going on that, those lawns. Bad for wildlife, bad for pollinators. I think many people are just allowing their lawns to grow back and to grow out. Um, and that's fine to an extent, but you are going to get the first couple of cycles. You get a lot of weeds, um, dandelions, buttercups, those types of things which can be a bit invasive. So you don't get a huge amount of biodiversity initially, but you can actually um, foster more species in two ways. Um, one, by using a sort of simple wildflower meadow seed pack and scatter those as the seed, as the grasses um, is growing out. Or people who live in more rem- rural and remote areas will have seed influx, seed rain, as we call it, coming in from outside plants. So you, you'll get a natural increase in biodiversity anyway. I mean, it doesn't mean that you let you have to let your entire lawn go. There, there's a um, a really nice scheme in Kew Gardens in London where they mow um, thoroughfares um, and maintain them as, as lawn pathways, but allow the edges to grow as, as wild um, meadows. And it's really effective. It cuts down a lot on machinery and herbicide and watering, um, but still allows the public access to, to the gardens. Of course, you can do that on a much smaller scale if you have a, a decent sized yard in, in BC as well. I'm here on the Sunshine Coast and there's no lawn watering allowed at all. Uh, at the moment. So, you know, it's it's, it's starting to be a, a, an issue um, and to conserve water and other resources, um, if it means that we let our grass grow and don't mow it every week, um, then, then so be it. And Professor Sunderland also said that there's nothing natural about lawns either, that they have their roots in, in wealth, privilege, in colonialism. They're part of that whole American dream of the 50s, uh, where you move into a house with a green lawn in the suburbs with a white picket fence. But I have questioned that adoration of the green lawn myself. And I I even experience it, Jill. I have this like deep-seated uh, desire or longing for a green lawn, even though I know it's a bad thing to have. We don't have a lawn ourselves. We, ha- we keep uh, things pretty minimal and we have a garden where we grow uh, vegetables. So we've opted for that instead of a lawn. But I will admit that I have many times admired a verdant, lush green lawn myself and then thought afterwards, wait a second, that that takes a lot of resources and maybe it's not the best use of our resources and our precious water. But Sunderland says that lawns started out initially as a means to, to tame the landscape. It came out of aristocracy. Only people who had the resources and labor to maintain it would, would have one. It was a way of kind of showing off. Uh, but now people are seeing lawns in a different way. It's changing. In fact, there's this movement of xeriscaping that's Zara, X-E-R-I, Zeriscaping, or the practice of replacing your lawn with less water-hungry plants. And it's booming in BC, according to Sigri Kendrick. She's the executive director of Okanagan Zeriscaping Association. They're a not-for-profit that educates folks about the benefits of letting your lawn go. And Sigri told me that traditional lawn conversions don't have to be all or nothing. 
for all of those people out there that love their lawn, I just say, try to make it a little bit smaller every year, you know, put in um, drought tolerant beds. You can do mixed shrubs or perennials, anything like that. Um, and our website uh, at the Okanagan Zero Escape Association has tons of before and afters of people taking out turf grass, which is basically inert, and then putting in um, mixed shrubs. And they're, they're absolutely beautiful. And they themselves are amazed. I just say, take it, you know, take it little steps. It doesn't have to be something huge. Huh, interesting. And like you said, Raji, you've been seeing people doing this, whether uh, they're doing it for those reasons, who knows why, maybe they just are tired of mowing the lawn, but certainly more people seem to be embracing this. Yeah, and I think about how different that is from when I was a kid. And if there was somebody on the block who didn't, for example, mow their lawn regularly, the neighbors would frown upon that. They would say things like, oh, I wish they would uh, keep up with their lawn so that the street looks better. And now things have kind of gone the other way. And the examples in my neighborhood of people letting things get a little bit wild on their on their front uh, former lawn, uh, they look fantastic. But I think it also does take some time for people to adjust to that kind of a shift. Uh, you mentioned the watering restrictions as well. And I know every year we have the discussion in that the lawn can go brown and it will still come back and you don't need to give it a ton of water to keep it. Uh, yeah, it might not look great all year round, but if you want to cut down on resources, there, there are some easy steps people, people can do. Yeah, for sure. People don't need to constantly water their lawn. Uh, you know, we've heard that it only takes uh, a little bit every week, not on a daily basis to keep your lawn going. And also, like you just said, let it go brown, let it go long, just like people relax a bit with these lawns. <laughs> Yeah, so we'll see uh, if more people uh, kind of embrace this trend to uh, ripping it up by having something else there. Raji, thank you so much. Thanks, Jill. Mornings with Simi. Well, with the start of a new school year just a couple of weeks away, we have heard from BC's health minister. Adrian Dix is telling parents they should not expect significant or substantial changes when it comes to pandemic protocols in classrooms. So we are expecting more details to be released this week or next week. The guidance on what health measures will be recommended or required in schools, if any. Jennifer Heighton, co-founder of Safe Schools Coalitions, is, is, Coalition, is joining us now to talk more about this. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, what are your thoughts on where we are as far as the pandemic and any protocols in schools and heading back into another school year? Well, looking at what's happening, um, while society wants to be done with COVID, um, evidence is showing that COVID is still serious and is not done with us. So, unfortunately, there's a lot of, um, you know, evidence that has happened over the summer. Things like um, schools in the United States and Germany that have opened up in August um, have gone, had to go remote uh, due to too many staff and students sick. Um, there's also reports showing that the Omicron variant, such as the BA5, which is circulating right now, um, is reinfecting people even just weeks later than they had the BA2 variant. So Omicron variants, you know, you can catch over and over, unfortunately. And then there's also um, more kids 
were in hospital from Omicron than in the previous two years, and that's in BC. And that's also repeated in, in other jurisdictions around the world. So it's not mild, even though people seem to think it is. It could still lead to some serious effects, especially because it's so prevalent. So looking at the school year then and what the plans look to be, according to Adrian Dix, which is more of um, just guidance and and so not doing many extra things, um, making masks optional, for example, that might not be the best choice considering all of these things, the reinfections, the kids in hospital, um, long COVID, there's more and more. Uh, there's a CDC report that came out a couple weeks ago that showed that kids who had COVID were more likely to be diagnosed with things like heart problems, cognitive issues, blood clotting disorders, seizures, diabetes, and more. And this is a CDC report based on millions of subjects. So it, the, the evidence is, is coming clear that we still do need to take it seriously, even though we all wish it were over. It's something that uh, for our own health and our own kids' health, we should be trying to be as precautionary as we can. So what measures would you, as a co-founder of the Safe Schools Coalition and a teacher, what would you like to see in place in September? Number one, clean air in schools needs to be addressed. That is something that even the federal government recognizes. The federal government actually has given $100 million to provinces for clean air in schools. That's exactly what the purpose of the money is for. BC's portion of that is $11.9 million. So far, the BC government has not released any plan for how they're going to spend that money, and they've known about it since July 14th. Right, because so, that seems like a pretty easy one if it's a, a question of uh, even as something as simple as putting air filters in, and especially in the older schools. I think people thought that was going to be done quite quickly. Exactly, and the puzzling thing to us at Safe Schools Coalition BC is that why has BC not put HEPA filtration units in schools the way Ontario has, for example? So Ontario, last summer, they had 70,000 HEPA filtration units in classrooms. They had committed to that, and then they bought another 40,000 in January when Omicron hit. So it's obviously an accepted practice um, and, you know, enough that they've spent millions and millions of dollars on it. Why has BC not done that? In fact, BC has forbidden um, parents from donating. There's lots of parents who've tried to donate a HEPA filtration unit for their child's classroom, and they've been told they can't. And do you know why why they've been told that? They've been told that because, well, there's been a variety of reasons given. Um, For some, they've been told, well, HEPA filtration is not needed in schools. Um, In other ones, they've been told, well, it would be an equity issue that one classroom would have a HEPA filtration unit and the other one wouldn't, uh, like next door. So they've been given a variety of reasons, but the, the issue is, is that Science shows that these units can help and do help. 
there actually have been studies in classrooms where it shows it has reduced transmission. And so why are why is there this barrier? Uh, I wanted to play for you just a quick comment. We had Dr. Brian Conway on the show earlier, uh, an infectious disease expert, and I asked him about any concerns or thoughts about the school year starting up again. Schools are probably safer for our children than the general community because we know who's there. We can send sick people home very easily, and it's pretty much always the same people day to day. That's a safer environment than the general community. I think we need to get more shots in arms, especially in kids, and teach people that if you learn this from school age, if you're sick, you stay home. This is something that hopefully will be part of the social fabric forever and ever going forward. What are your thoughts when he says schools are probably safer than being in the general public? That I take issue with because he's not thinking about the fact that schools are a place where everyone is together in a room. They can't distance. You're there for several hours at a time indoors. And part of that time indoors, like the lunchtime, for example, even when masks were mandatory, uh, kids had to take their masks off to eat lunch. So, you know, it's not necessarily, you know, it doesn't fit with what we've known about COVID, which is it spreads more easily indoors when people are close together um, and when you spend a lot of time together. All of those things are part of what is a school, in a school. So if somebody were to be infectious then what are the chances of the people surrounding that, that person of catching the virus? It's higher in that situation compared to a grocery store where you are only, you're very close to someone hardly at all, and if you are, you're just passing them in, a, in an aisle. So, um, and the other thing, too, is evidence is not showing that. So in Alberta, for example, um, there's a court challenge and the government was forced to reveal some of the documents that they um, were using when they removed the mask mandate back in February. And the interesting thing was that the government sat on some interesting information. One of it was that schools that had mask mandates had three times less outbreaks than the schools that didn't, um, and that the case rates and hospitalization rates in those communities were also lower. All right, Jennifer, we're going to have to leave it there for today. I don't mean to to cut you off, but hopefully we can bring you back on the show uh, as we get closer to school, getting back in session. That is Jennifer Heighton, co-founder of the Safe Schools Coalition. This is Mornings with Simi. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi for a couple of weeks. Well, we have had some hot temperatures in Metro Vancouver. We know for people who like summer, you got to get out there and enjoy it because you never know how long it's going to last. But you don't want it to be ruined because of mosquitoes. So how do you best protect yourself against mosquitoes? Joining us now to talk more about that is Taz Stewart, entomologist, also mosquito expert and director of technical operations at Poulin's Pest Control, which is based in Winnipeg. Thank you so much for being with us. Not a problem. Pleasure to be on. Thank you. Are we able to say whether it's a good year or a bad year or, or how much we are bothered by mosquitoes this year? 
Well, that's, that's the fun part. It depends where you're at. If you want to come to uh, Manitoba, I can tell you a whole different story. But in BC, <laughs> your, your numbers, you've been hot and dry, generally speaking. You know, it's uh, something that mosquitoes need is water. And therefore, if there's no water, there's no mosquitoes. But if people don't realize that a little bird bath, a, a fish pond, uh, your gutters, your roof gutters that can hold water for more than seven days, you can get mosquitoes being produced. And of course, those mosquitoes, when they emerge, they're going to come out, those females, and they're going to bite you. So you want to be protecting yourself with uh, a DEET-based uh, product or a keratin-based product and uh, wear light clothing, uh, you know, long pants, long shirts. I, I heard your Humidex is going to be 34. You're not going to really want to wear that, but, you know, avoid those times when uh, mosquitoes are going to be most active at that dusk and dawn period. Or use a product uh, like a, a, an off-lantern uh, that will give you a repellency on top of using those personal protection measures. Right. So lots of things that people can do uh, to once you're dealing with mosquitoes. But you made the point there about standing water and it doesn't sounds like it doesn't have to be very much to be inviting for mosquitoes. Exactly. I, I, I hate to say this stat, but uh, when you look at a glass of water that's half full, you can get hundreds of mosquitoes out of that in a very short time period when temperatures are very, very warm. You can literally go from egg to adult in little as, you know, four to seven days when it's hot and warm. Wow. And, and anything then, any standing water, mosquitoes will be drawn to that and uh, will we'll take advantage? Yeah, exactly. And uh, with, with Vancouver especially, um, the sewer system is a, a site for mosquitoes to develop in too. So uh, there is a program that is in place where they'll put methoprene into the sewer systems to make sure that mosquitoes don't come out of those small sites that can produce hundreds of mosquitoes. And of course, that's your backyard. They're going to be biting you. <laughs> uh, you mentioned the females. Uh, I, I didn't realize this before. So it's only females that bite? Yep. Uh, males, you, you want to be a male mosquito. All you do is you drink plant nectar all day and party mm-hmm. and uh, have, uh, you know, relations with female mosquitoes. And then they come out, they use the blood meal as their uh, uh, protein source to develop the eggs. And then they'll lay those eggs in batches of 150 to 250. And they don't die after they've fed on you. They will actually uh, take a couple days off, have another blood meal, develop another set of eggs, depending on which species you're dealing with. Hmm. Uh, And is there a reason why some people tend to be more attractive to mosquitoes? Or if you're sitting with a group of people, it always seems like some people get bit a whole lot more than others. Okay. Mosquitoes, the female mosquitoes are picky. Um, If they don't like the way you smell, let's say you've ran around the track for 400 meters and you're throwing off a lot of CO2 and lactic acid, that female mosquito might be more attracted to somebody who hasn't run or done a whole bunch of activity. So they they, they met and like your cologne, your perfume. They just follow the CO2 plume and say, hey, you're dark gray in my eyes. You're warm-blooded. I'll give you a shot. And if you're not tasty, I'm going to go to the next person. <laughs> because it seems like the, um, the things that you put out, I don't know how effective they are, things like citronella candles or things that have that distinct smell. Do those work good as deterrents? It all depends on the, the situation. Um, if you have a calm area, um, uh, again, using a citronella candle, an off-lantern, um, a fan, even weirdly enough, if you put the fan blowing out and you're in a corner, you will help reduce mosquitoes trying to get to you when they're trying to fly up, up against that wind. Hmm. And when we talk about the bites in BC or, or in Canada as well, maybe for people as well if they're traveling, um, are there any mosquitoes that we need to be careful about or that are dangerous, like when we're traveling and they can carry disease? 
Yeah, uh, in in BC specifically in Vancouver, you have Culex pipiens, which is a vector for West Nile virus, uh, and it is present. Uh, but your West Nile virus numbers are reasonably low right now, and at this time of year, it is technically the most dangerous time period. So, using those per- personal protection measures are key. And you mentioned times as well. Are there times of day when you're more likely to become a meal for a mosquito? <laughs> Depending on species, yes. <laughs> but, um, most mosquito species that feed on humans are most active at dusk and dawn. So that's when you want to be doing the personal protection measures, using the DEET or the keratin, using the uh, optional uh, personal protection measures or I hate to say this kind of term, avoiding when they're most active. And nobody wants to go in when it's nice out. No, that's very, very true. Uh, You mentioned those products too. And I know it's different than perhaps the more stronger chemicals that we used in the past. But but the products that you can use and put on your skin, are they kind of more, more friendly now? Yeah, um, a DEET, uh, 30% DEET will give you about six hours of protection. That's assuming you're not going jumping into, you know, a lake or something that you need to be reapplying those products. The keratin, also the same uh, thing. It's an alternative. You may, there are some people out there that may have, you know, allergies or allergic to it. So it gives you an alternative product. And of course, as always, follow and read label directions. It's very, very important. More does not equal better. All right. That is good to know. Uh, They do seem to be a nuisance for humans and something that we spend a lot of time avoiding or keeping away from us. What purpose do they serve? (laughs) Great question. They are food for other animals, toads, frogs, British diving beetles. They do do have that purpose, but of course, they've been in the uh, fossil record for millions of years, and therefore they've uh, developed themselves into be a pain to the human butt. (laughs) <laughs> Literally. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and do you think it will change or kind of the mosquito landscape in Canada? Will it change as we're seeing kind of hotter and drier summers? Um, yeah, and that's where um, mosquitoes, uh, like the Culex uh, species, where they like hotter and drier, and that may increase the chance for human uh, disease transmission. But it's all dependent on if, if there's enough water, uh, a, a, a bird source, and then it transfers from the birds to the mosquito to the end dead end hosts as we move into uh, later August as we're getting to the end of summer. And I hate to say it, but that's when they're most dangerous. At the end of summer. Yeah. And then until when fall, till we really see the temperature drop and then we kind of get a reprieve. That is correct. Yes. But in, in BC, you guys have the nice temperatures all year and that's not fair. You, you get minus 40, you get the nice, you know, mi- minus five. <laughs> right. So our punishment is we have to deal with mosquitoes for longer periods of time. <laughs> Potentially, yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So would you say, just one other question, would you say it's better to try and avoid them altogether, get rid of the standing water and, and don't have any attractants to them or, or fight the defensive once they've arrived? Um, there's lots of answers to that one. And I would say the best thing is personal protection measures, avoid when they're most active and use products that uh, you feel comfortable and safe with in your own backyard. All right. That is good advice. Taz, thank you so much for joining us and talking mosquitoes this morning. Not a problem. You have a great day.